Gustav Holst has a reputation today as a one-work composer. In fact, for most people, it seems, he's the composer of The Planets and what else? Well, this is a shame for two reasons. One is that some of the most original and beautiful music written by an English composer in the first half of the 20th century tends to get eclipsed. But the other reason is that it tends to give us a rather skewed picture of Holst. He wasn't normally as extrovert and brilliantly showy as he is in Mars, Jupiter or Uranus. So today's a good opportunity to look at some of the other sides of Holst's musical personality, a very original musical personality, as we'll discover. We'll get quickly off to our first piece. It's called A Fugal Overture, and Holst wrote it in 1922. It's a short piece, so here are just a couple of points to help us focus on what Holst is doing in this piece. Holst was fascinated with rhythm in a way that went way beyond what most other English composers of his time were doing. He often included music with five or seven beats to the bar in his works. He was fascinated by the rhythmic innovations of Stravinsky, a composer who went well over the head of most of Holst's contemporaries. Well, the Fugal Overture is set entirely in 4-4, but Holst splits up those four crotchets in a very unusual way. To give you an idea what I mean, try counting along with this. That really is in four beats to the bar, although it sounds like a much more complicated arrangement of rhythms. Now, underneath that, cellos and basses start off with the fugal theme, which is on the same rhythmic template. It starts right at the bottom of the orchestra on cellos and basses. And then Holst introduces a second theme in a sharp rhythmic counterpoint to that first theme. It's still in 4-4, but it sounds as if it's obeying a completely different set of beats. And this time Holst uses orchestral colour to mark off these ideas even more strikingly against each other. While the strings play the first fugal theme, it's the trombones who play this new theme. Writing virtuosic ideas for the trombones like that may seem risky, but Holst knew exactly what he was doing, because he was actually a trombonist himself. Unlike most composers of his day, who started on the violin or the piano, Holst learnt the trombone because of a condition called neuritis of the hand, which made it much more difficult for him to master instruments with keys or with normal fingerings. So the trombone it was, but it encouraged him to develop one of the most brilliant brass styles in English music of the time. Now we'll hear how Holst develops those rhythms in the Fugal Overture. Sometimes we hear the rhythms independently, sometimes they're brilliantly superimposed, but the effect is to create something that seems alive on many levels at once, an incredibly muscular, vivid, rhythmic portrait. Here then is Holst's Fugal Overture, played by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Vernon Handley.
Fugal Overture by Gustav Holst, played by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Vernon Handley. The next piece we're to hear, or rather movement from a piece, was written much earlier in Holst's career. It's the finale of his suite Benny Mora, which he wrote in 1909-10. Throughout his career, Holst was deeply drawn to the music and culture of the East. It's a theme he'd already explored in his opera Savitri. Benny Mora is subtitled Oriental Suite, and it was inspired by two things. First of all, a visit to Algeria, and second, a reading of a novel by Robert Hitchens called The Garden of Allah. The finale is named after the famous street in Algeria, the street of the Ouled Niles, where there's a bazaar, the traders gather together, and there's an extraordinary mixture of different calls and musical and human sounds. The piece starts with a chant-like phrase on low strings, and the top line, given to the violas, has a distinctly oriental modal colour. That phrase is repeated over and over again as the kind of backbone on which this portrait of an oriental bazaar is based. Next, almost as though completely independently, a flute starts up. First of all, we just hear a few broken phrases, and then it turns into a continuous flow, the same figure repeated over and over again. Apparently, Holst had been deeply impressed when he'd heard an Arab musician playing the same phrase on a bamboo flute for over two hours. This is his recreation of that effect. The next thing we hear is a three-note figure that's passed from oboe to trumpet to piccolo. Each of the instruments plays the same notes, but the character changes completely each time the new instrument takes it up. It's like three different people shouting out the same cry in the market, but each time with a completely different tone of voice. Now, Holst adds another rhythmic layer to the texture, rather as he did in the Fugal Overture. And also as in the Fugal Overture, he uses orchestral colour to pick out this new clashing rhythm. It's played on a member of a family of instruments we haven't heard yet, the percussion, the bass drum in particular. If you put all those sounds together, you get something rather like the incredible kaleidoscope of sounds and colours that one encounters in an Arab bazaar. This building up of layers and colours is exactly the technique Holst used to build this piece. And yet all the time, he's very careful to make sure that they stand out from each other.
I find it incredible to think that that's an English composer writing in 1910, at a period when modern British music was epitomised by Elgar. This is just a completely different way of thinking musically. It has more in common, almost, with the way that modern minimalist composers like Steve Reich put pieces together, especially that endlessly repeated little flute pattern. But Holst goes on, adding more and more layers of contrasting detail to this extraordinary sound tapestry. Next, oboe and violins begin a kind of meditation on the slow chant theme. But the way Holst writes it again, it feels like it's happening in a different tempo. the activity and the pace increase, and the music moves into a kind of faster rhythm. It's still the same basic crotchet beat, but with three beats to a bar instead of four, and Holst splits up the beats, a bit like at the beginning of the Fugal Overture. Against that, the violins begin a dance figure in a new tempo, but this isn't quite so rigidly three in a bar. Meanwhile, the bass brass and bass drum underline the new faster three in a bar. Another new dance theme emerges, and again with a very distinctive colour. This time, Holst arrives at this colour by, as it were, mixing his musical paints in new ways. It's a combination of the sound of flutes and muted trumpet. It all builds up to a magnificently vital, vibrant collage, rather like the way one's senses are continually grabbed and assaulted and charmed from so many different directions in an Arab market. Flautist, with his one little phrase, is still going. However, Holst has found an ingenious way of relaying it, so that it's passed among the three flutes. It sounds continuous to us, but mercifully, Holst allows each of the players a little break from time to time.
The bassoons take up a kind of slow three-in-a-bar rhythm, the one we originally heard on the bass drum, and there's a dance theme down in the lower strings. Above all this, an oboe seems to improvise as though in a tempo of his own, floating melancholically above all the rest of the activity. Now let's hear the full, glorious effect of Holt's remarkable sound tapestry. This really is a long way from the kind of quaint oriental musical picture postcards of the Edwardian period, and it was far too modern and far too vivid for audiences of Holt's time, as so often in his career he was ahead of them. The critics hated Benny Mora. One wrote, We do not ask for Biskra dancing girls in Langham Place. Why not, one wonders. Perhaps the truth is that Holt's scene was just too real too drawn from life and far too musically daring and vivid for the musical public of Edwardian Britain. But now we're free to appreciate Holt's brilliance and imaginative freedom and sense at the same time how much he seems to be looking forward to the music of our own time.
the finale of Holst's Oriental Suite, Beni Mora, a performance specially recorded by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Vernon Handley. We'll end today with the work many people would say was Holst's masterpiece, his orchestral tone poem, Egdon Heath, which he wrote near the end of his life in 1927. It's not an easy work to take in on just one hearing. It's not open and direct. It doesn't grab you by the lapels and compel you to listen like the planets or even like the fugal overture. In a way, it's a kind of English pastoral. But it's about as far removed from those lush, nostalgic and rather self-indulgent tone poems of Delius as could be imagined. It's much more like Sibelius's forest-inspired final tone poem, the eerie elemental Tapiola. Host subtitled it Homage to Thomas Hardy, and it was in fact inspired by a passage in one of Hardy's early novels, The Return of the Native. It's the passage where Hardy is describing the heathland that forms the backdrop of so much of the activity of the novel. A Saturday afternoon in November was approaching the time of twilight and the vast tract of unenclosed wild known as Egdon Heath embrowned itself moment by moment. Overhead, that hollow stretch of whitish cloud shutting out the sky was as a tent which had the whole heath for its floor. It was a spot which returned upon the memory of those who loved it with an aspect of peculiar and kindly congruity. Smiling champagnes of flowers and fruit hardly do this. Twilight combined with the severity of Egdon Heath to evolve a thing majestic without severity, impressive without showiness, emphatic in its admonitions, grand in its simplicity. Haggard Egdon appealed to a subtler and scarcer instinct, to a more recently learnt emotion than that which responds to the sort of beauty called charming and fair. It was at present a place perfectly accordant with man's nature, neither ghastly, hateful, nor ugly, neither commonplace, unmeaning, nor tame, but, like a man, slighted and enduring. As with some persons who have long lived apart, solitude seemed to look out of its countenance. It had a lonely face, suggesting tragical possibilities. Hardy's model for his fictional Egdon Heath was a stretch of wasteland in Dorset, not far from where he was born. Yet as anyone who's ever visited the land that forms the model for Egdon Heath will probably agree, in the novel the effect is rather stranger than that, perhaps more suggestive of the wilderness of Dartmoor, which Hardy also knew well. Anyway, novelists rarely just reproduce reality, they transform it. That's what imaginative recreation is all about. And that's certainly what Hulse did in creating his orchestral tone poem, Egdon Heath. The opening is a marvellous piece of scene setting that seems to grow almost exactly out of those words we've just heard read. It's a weird sound, a strange chromatic wandering. And here's a question for you. What instrument is playing at the beginning? Those were double basses, playing very high up in their register. 
They're not quite so comfortable up there at the top of their range. And there's a kind of edgy, slightly blurred quality about the playing as a result. But that's a marvellous bit of tone painting on Holt's part, because it really does conjure up the effect of the kind of grey, leaden sky Hardy envisaged hanging over his ancient heathland. At the same time, the first four notes the double basses play spell out a very characteristic interval. It's the one called the tritone, three tones piled up one on top of another. It's the classic uneasy interval. In fact, medieval composers were expressly forbidden from using it. It was labelled the Diabolus in Musica, the devil in music, for its unsettling, destabilising effect. In the previous pieces we've heard today, we've heard very open intervals, like the fourths of the overture, or closed intervals like that very tight, involuted chromatic writing in Benny Mora. Here, it's the tritone that gives the work its basic character, that strange, quiet unease which seems to run right throughout this piece. That same interval is also spelt out by the final notes of the double basses phrase. Now the strings begin to imitate each other and those tritones clash even more uneasily. Now the string lines begin to fill in the tritone, as it were, more and more chromatically, but still there's this kind of restless, foreboding quality. This is the figure played by half the violas. all that together and the effect is quite unique. Given that we in Britain are so frequently on the receiving end of grey overcast skies, it's curious that there have been so few attempts to evoke the effect of that in music. Yet listening to the beginning of Egdon Heath, I can't get that kind of skyscape out of my mind. There's a fabulous effect that followed when suddenly all the strings come in with a much divided, widely spaced chord, pianississimo. On paper, it looks like some of the divided string writing of Holst's friend Vaughan Williams' Talis Fantasia, but the effect is diametrically opposed. Where the Talis Fantasia string sound is characteristically warm and radiant, this is cold and eerie.
Now for what Hardy described as the human element, slighted and enduring mankind. A noble tune begins to arise slowly in the bass. But the human element is immediately contrasted with the much more discomforting character of nature in Egdon Heath. New figures on the strings begin to move faster, there's an anxious quality now, and again the music is still based on that characteristic uneasy interval of the tritone. Here it is slowed down. Above this, the woodwind try to sing out like the human theme we heard earlier, and instead it grows increasingly agitated. Then the strings figures begin to turn rough, like the weather one can imagine on Egdon Heath, although still that interval of the tritone is the basic governing template behind this music. Against that, we have the contrasting sections of the orchestra, the woodwind and the horns, now much more insistent, jaggedly, as though mankind is struggling against the weather, against the elements of hostile Egdon Heath. Let's hear the whole of this build-up now. You can hear how the picture changes from that noble beginning, introducing the human element, to the sense of humanity struggling to endure.
Those are some of the strangest harmonies we've heard yet. Indeed, they're some of the strangest harmonies produced by any British composer writing in the 1920s. This pastoral has more in common with Saturn or Neptune from the planets, or the extraordinary song on Betelgeuse set in the outer limits of the galaxy, kind of territory one sometimes feels Holst was most at home in. But after that music, the human element returns, with it more stable harmonies and warmer scoring for brass, led by the trombone, which, let's not forget, was Holst's own instrument. So there's a degree of identification, perhaps, with the human element in this tone poem. Notice how at the beginning of that passage the bass seems to stride forwards in regular intervals like a walking figure. Well, that's an interesting reminder that Holst himself was a great walker, and it was indeed by walking that he discovered the landscape of Egdon Heath in the company of the author Thomas Hardy. So that's an interesting way in which the actual physical effort involved in conceiving a piece of music actually ends up being translated into orchestral terms. Now the oboe makes a plaintive attempt to make something more songful out of an idea we heard earlier on, with an upward-running figure at the end developing like tendrils. But notice here how the music seems to be poised between not one but two keys. That's an effect called bitonality, of which Holst was extremely fond. It adds to the harmonic piquancy of this music. As if that wasn't unsettling enough, Holst provides a harmonic background on the strings which clashes still further with those harmonies. It adds to the strangeness, the eeriness of this passage. Now comes an extraordinarily poignant little passage where the figure on the flutes turns into something almost like a Hardy-esque rural folk dance, but still 
Those unyielding, grey, overcast string harmonies persist in the background. It reminds me of my own walks as a boy in my native Pennines, coming across abandoned farmhouses or other relics of human life. They're reminders that places like this once contained busy human activity, but now there's only a sad, plaintive echo. ending of Egdon Heath is wonderful. There's a last reminder of that human theme on the woodwind and then the strings, but then it freezes on a dissonance on the strings, an extraordinary cold sound, as though the blood has somehow run out of this music. fragments of that nervous earlier woodwind song rise again questioningly. They're left spelling out the tritone at seminal interval as though it were a kind of unanswerable question. Eventually, the string harmonies seem to settle on a kind of grim G, neither major or minor. The ending has a kind of unresolved quality, a mystery, as though the spectator is still trying to find some comforting meaning in the landscape, but the landscape simply refuses to offer up what it is the spectator requires. It remains inscrutable. <laughs> 